My name is Don Giller. You may know me as the voice of undercover narcotics agent Larry in the TV series Robert Blake Mysteries. Let me wish you and yours a happy and safe 100th Letterman Podcast, Part 2. Wide Pants proudly presents The Late Show with David Letterman. Worldwide Pants, the most trusted name in pants and entertainment and pants. Carter was great, you know, and Carter, yeah. I'll never forget the first time I met Carter. He had just started with the New York Times and we were competing with Arsenio Hall. And it was a Monday night. And in the Sunday Times, Arsenio took out a full, it was when he first started. Yep. Took out a full page ad in the Sunday Times in the arts and leisure section. Yep. And in that same section, Bill Carter wrote a very favorable review, All right? The next night I'm at a party at the Russian Tea Room for Billy Crystal had done a special called uh, The Midnight Train to Moscow where he, he, he went to see his relatives in Russia. Yeah. And so they had the premiere at the Russian Tea Room and somebody introduces me to Carter. And I was a little drunk on vodka and I just <laughs> lay symptom. I lay, I go, what kind of fucking paper do you call that New York Times? No so kidding. You have a review, a favorable review for Arsenio Hall and it's a full page ad. <laughs> what kind of fucking rag are you running there? Blah, blah, blah. And I just berate Carter. I scr oh. I'm screaming at him, ask him about it. And I'm screaming at him. I get home that night and I realize what I've done. So the next day I call Carter and I go, Bill, I had a few too many drinks. Obviously, <laughs> I love the New York Times. You you seem like a lovely guy. I hope we have a long and fruitful relationship. He goes, I found it very entertaining. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and we became friends after that. Well, here's the thing. Johnny did not want to get involved. He was an NBC guy. He was very close to Bob Wright, head of NBC at the time. They traveled together. They, they were very close friends. So he did not want to elbow his way into this conversation. He was clearly a supporter of Dave's. People knew that, but he didn't want to say it. He'd had conflict with Leno over her, his crazy manager, all of that. But he wanted to steer clear of it. So I really needed him for a couple of things in this, in this. especially I needed him to confirm his conversation with Dave, which was the ultimate conversation with Dave. I needed that really badly. Yeah. I needed his side of the conversation. I had Dave's side. I needed his side. So as a reporter, I, right? Like, like yes, I, I'm doing a narrative. I can I could write the story and say David Letterman says this happened. I can do that. 
But if both people tell me, I can just redo the conversation because now I have the evidence of both sides. Yes. So I need both. Yes. So how am I going to get Carson? Well, I made an appeal to his lawyer, um, Ed Hookstratton. Yeah. The hook. The hook. <laughs> and uh, and Hookstratton seemed to want to not necessarily help me, but to kind of be a player in it. Like he he liked being involved. And we had a couple of lunches at the grill in Beverly Hills, which was Johnny's favorite restaurant, hmm. just me and Hookstratton. And uh, and I basically you know was trying to see if he could. And he said, well, I'll ask Johnny and it's going to be hard. And he, he wasn't making any commitments. And finally, he said, uh, why don't you uh, why don't you type up a list of questions and maybe I'll get them to Johnny and maybe he might respond to some of that if he knows what you want to ask. And I said, you know, so he'll send me back written answers. That's not really what I like, but it's better than nothing. Absolutely. So, so I had this strategy <laughs> because I thought I know one thing that may get Johnny's real interest. And that was a story that Dave told me. And Dave told me this story that about, I don't know, two, three years into his late, late night show on NBC. When it's when he's a phenomenon and he's on the cover of Rolling Stone and all this is happening for him, he uh, he's in his office one day and his assistant says that uh, Johnny's then lawyer, bombastic Bushkin, Henry Bushkin, <laughs> has come to see Dave, and that was not unusual because the Carson Productions had a very small piece of Letterman's show, like five yep. percent something. But and Johnny always paid. I mean, Dave played fealty to Johnny always. So. His lawyer's here. Okay, I'll talk to him. So Bushkin comes in. Bushkin sits down and tells him, we are so impressed. You're doing great. It's fantastic. All this tension, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we think, you know, we'd like to line you up and sign you up to Carson Productions now. We'll sign you up because then when Johnny does retire, you'll be in line to get the show. And Dave starts to wonder <laughs> about this. And he says, something hinky going on. Yeah, does, does Johnny know about this? <laughs> and Bushing says, well, no, I haven't discussed it with him yet, but I think this is a great idea for both of us. And immediately Dave was like, this is a fire. I do not want to be anywhere near. Yeah. And he basically says, well, okay, I'll, I'll put you in touch with my manager, Rollins, Jack Rollins. And, uh, and you know, you guys can talk about it. I, I, I'm going to stay steer clear of this, but... You know, why don't, why don't we set up a thing? And then he leaves and Dave tells us, never let that guy know this again, basically. <laughs> <laughs> basically. So so I had this story, right? And I thought, I wonder if Johnny knows that happened. Oh. Because Johnny had by then had a massive falling out with Bushkin and we said robbed him and all that. Yeah. So in my questions, I include. So I heard from Dave that there was this thing where Bushkin showed up and offered him the Tonight Show to succeed you. Right. And that was one of my questions. And I had like, you know, I tried not to do too many. Maybe I did 10. Right. That's not a question, Bill. That's a trail of breadcrumbs right there. That's <laughs> genius on your part to do that. Well, well I, I was desperate. I really wanted to talk to him. So <laughs> I so I send it off to uh, Bush uh, Hookstratton and Hookstratton says, uh, OK, I'll get these to Johnny. Do not expect him to come back quickly. He may never respond. Right. He may say to me. Uh, you know, tell him, you know, I, I like what he's doing, but I can't, I just don't want to be a part of it. Just don't expect much. Okay. And it, it may take, even if he, if he does, it's gonna, it may take weeks before he decides on this. 
I said, okay. Lots of managing expectations. You're basically describing my life with this show right now, just so you know. Thanks. But basically I'd say, yeah, I thank him for helping. And sure. And uh, in those days I used to work from home every Friday. And uh, the next day was a Friday and I was home and uh, in the middle of the afternoon uh, and my phone was not a cell phone. It was my (laughs) phone uh, rings and I pick it up. Uh, this is Johnny Carson. Holy crap. You, you got to tell me about this Bushkin story. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. So I, I, I tell him that story. And he says, you, you, you know how that guy cheated me? And all of a sudden, I'm like, I, I understand that, Johnny. That's why I wanted to run this by you and everything. And, he said, and I said, Ken, I've got you on the phone. Can I ask you some of these other things? And he said, well, I'm really uncomfortable about it. But so we talk a little and I'm pulling threads out of him. Yeah. in this conversation and he's and we're going back and forth about don't say i said that and i said okay whatever hmm. and we went back and forth. but i said i really got to know about this conversation dave says he called you and he says yes he called me but and he repeats it word for word with dave i mean it was, it was identical identical yeah. and i was like i and I, I talked to him for maybe 40 minutes let's say yeah. and uh i hang up the phone and i'm upstairs in the office my wife is in the kitchen making dinner or something. And I just said, (laughs) (laughs) and she came to the bottom of the stand and she said, that was Carson on the phone, right? I said, it sure was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's how I got Johnny Carson. On the landline, you could have been mowing the lawn. You could have been getting groceries. Like like that's the world back then. Yeah, but I'll I'll tell you, Johnny wants to know about Bushkin. He was gonna hear, he was gonna get to me somehow about that story. Ovitz made it fun because he was the revered, he was, uh, you know, the Wizard of Oz. He was the guy behind the curtain. He was, you know, Michael Ovitz. Oh, my God, in hushed tones, we're going to meet Michael Ovitz. <laughs> and we just abused him. We just used to abuse the shit out of him. And he loved it. They Let- would make fun of him? I Obviously, I didn't do it. It was all stemming from Letterman giving us license to do it. Yep. And then we all followed suit. We'd make fun of him, you know. He would, we'd have a meeting with him and we'd mention the so-and-so is not treating us too well and not giving us a lot of guests. And he would pull out, he had a single buck slip in a leather, like little binder that the corners went into the thing. And he'd pull out this piece of leather and he'd write a note and put it back in his pocket. And Letterman would go, who are you going to kill? You're going to kill somebody? Is that a fucking hit list? Are you going to murder some? You're going to have somebody killed, right? And Ovitz would just laugh and, you know, giggle about it. And we just used to do crazy shit with him. And I stayed very good friends with Ovitz. And and when Ovitz left CAA, Letterman was very upset. Because as Letterman used to say about Ovitz, he goes, he's not the smartest guy in the world, necessarily. He's this much smarter than every agent he's ever had. This much smarter. And it was true. There were agents all over the place. It wasn't like this was Ovitz over here. He was this much smarter. Which is not to say that he wasn't a bright guy. He was a very bright guy and very cultured and a lovely guy. He loved us. He just loved hanging out with us. He loved fooling around with us and ordering pizzas. And he (laughs) it was the one opportunity I think he got to be a real guy. Yeah. He just used to love coming to the show. And I'll never forget. So anyway, when he left. CAA and went to Disney, 
Letterman was very upset. He felt like he left, he lost, you know, his most trusted advisor and guy that got him where he, where he got. Um, I, I would tell you, it's one of the great, great times of my career. If I, if I had, you know, the top 10 moments, it would be yeah. in the top two. Um, getting awesome. Letterman at, was so exciting. I give all credit to Howard Stringer, um, who was the president of CBS Broadcasting at the time yeah. and a great um, believer as, as Mr. Paley was, who founded the network, who, who, who founded, started CBS and, and ran it, uh, owned it um, for, for most of his life. Uh, it's about show business. And, and Howard um, heard the rumblings that Dave might be available and interested. And then, of course, NBC made the decision to go with Jay. And that, you know, put it kind of a public, then it was more of a public I wouldn't say auction, but it was a showcase, a presentation. ABC was in it, you know. I think oh, it was, Ovitz, one of the greatest yeah. uh, setups yeah. in history with what yes. Mike Ovitz did to yeah. have these he courtesans did. show up. Yeah. Yep. And, and <laughs> the courtesans did. Uh, but, uh, uh, and I was not uh, into the, in the negotiations, you know, that was Howard and the entertainment folks and the, yeah. the business folks. But, you know, Howard wanted Letterman. And Howard knew the value of talent. He had run the news division. He knew the value of talent there, uh, behind and in front of the camera. Yeah. And and he was determined. And I'll never forget when he got the phone call. Uh, we were in a phone booth. There, there, attention viewers and listeners. There were something called phone booths, <laughs> and that's where you put. Uh, they were public telephones, and you put <laughs> money in them to make a phone call. Uh, we were at a press tour event at the, what's it called? The Lowe's Santa Monica Hotel, which is a beachfront hotel owned by Lowe's, which was the Lowe's Corporation, which was owned by Larry Tish, who at that point owned CBS. Yep. And Howard was the president of broadcasting. And I was the marketing guy, uh, similar cast of characters. And he was going to get or make the phone call uh, or he was told that Mike Ovitz was calling him, yeah. but he was not reachable because he was about to give a presentation at this CBS press event at this hotel uh, in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. And so we went to a phone booth and made the, he sat there making the call. And I, when some others were standing beside him and I don't, I can't honestly tell you, Mike, what the signal was or what the thing. I think he just hung up the phone and said, we got him. We the got smile him. probably said it all. Yeah. I mean. And we just, <laughs> well, it was exhilaration and exhaustion. And I think we just couldn't believe it. Yeah. We just couldn't believe it. It was so great. It was game. It was game changing. Getting Dave um, is, you know, getting a franchise. And I, I, I liken it to when Bill Paley stole Jack Benny from NBC. Jack Benny was the Letterman, Carson, whatever. It was not late night. He was a primetime yep. comedy entertainer, had a yep. show, the most popular show on radio at the time. And Paley went out and offered him, you know, a ton of money and, and, and a reason to come. And he switched from NBC to CBS. And in fact, I studied the strategies there 
when we got Dave to see if there were any clues or little marketing gems we could pick up because I saw it as a similar situation that it was this same Jack Benny, but going yep. to a different home at a different time. And it was just like that. And I still have the Jack Benny is coming to CBS print ads, yeah. um, you know, um, in, in my collection of, uh, of TV ephemera. Um, oh, so so I, great. I looked at those ads. I, I looked at, but it was, it was a huge talent get. And with, you know, with, thank you for your nice comments about, you know, what we did and what our team did. But look, David Letterman is a singular franchise player yep. and he brings his own audience. What we had to do was convince other audience members who may not have been as familiar with Dave to come. You know, the, the, the marketing, uh, you target much exactly like a bullseye and the center of the bullseye is your you know, use your, use your, the low hanging fruit. I mean, the people who are going to be there. Sure. And the people going to be there are Dave fans, right? Yep. So they're all coming. Yep. So the, his fans are coming. They're the center. Then you go to the first ring, the next ring um, uh, in the bullseye target. And that's, you know, people who've watched Dave, they wouldn't consider them, you know, loyal viewers of your night, but they're certainly familiar with Dave and his humor and are willing to give it a try. And then you go to the next ring, the next ring, and the farther you go from the center, you know, the more outliers you have. They're often not worth chasing. It's yes. really, you know, getting, it's really getting the, uh, the, the, the center and a couple of rings there and then building the franchise. And look, we knew this was no secret. Dave is a franchise, this monumental shift, Johnny is gone, Leno is on, you know, um, Letterman is coming to CBS in an hour earlier. This is gonna be just um, the focus of everything. And it was, you know, it was well, August 30th, uh, as I remember, of uh, mm -hmm. 93, mm -hmm. and uh, on a hot and steamy day. And, um, you know, we worked all summer uh, putting it on, but believe me, it was no secret, not just with what we did, but, you know, you talked about Bill Carter did a fantastic job getting the whole story and, you know, yep. and all of his, all of his counterparts and colleagues it, it was a huge, it was the press story. You talk about George Schweitzer, who I yes, knew sir. when I was a page. He was a production manager when I was a page. So I, I go way back with George. What a phenomenal marketing mind. Oh, great. Great. Yeah. But, but you know the problem? When we got there, you know, promo writers are all frustrated writers. They want to be comedy writers. They all want to be working on, on the Letterman show. They don't want to be writing promos for it. So as a result, when we first got there, they started trying to write funny promos. But they were never in our voice. They were never in our sensibility. They were always off. And we would always reject, reject, just do a straight promo. Yeah. But Dave provide the, the, the joke. And you just go coming soon on CBS, 1135, you know, whatever. And they never got it. They just couldn't resist the temptation. <laughs> so we were getting frustrated with the, the fact that they always wanted to do funny promos and they kept trying, they kept trying. So we had the idea of hiring our own promo people and doing our own promos. So that pissed off. George and it pissed off CBS because they had only allowed it once before when Cosby did his show, his new show at CBS, it, yeah. let him have control of the promos and they brought in an outside agency. So we started interviewing outside people 
And I'll never forget J.J. Abrams, who wasn't J.J. Abrams. No. He came in with the guy from Grounded for Life, the cab driver on MTV, the redheaded guy. Uh, Okay. I don't have it, but Don will get it to us in a second. Donald Love. Okay, yeah. He came in with he came in with Donald Love and they pit who's a great, great comic, and they pitched an idea for a promo campaign that was great. And we had to pitch it up to CBS and they that's no good. And you know, we had never ended up hiring an outside agency and CBS resented me. They didn't like me because I, I was the cowboy who wanted to do our own promos. Funny. And now, an important announcement from this network's new Late Show host. I'm Dave, and I want to be your TV friend. Same Dave, better time, new station. Plenty of colorful puppets and peppy musical numbers in it. Oh, no, I'm, I'm thinking of the CBS Evening News. I'm, I'm sorry. We okay. walked across the street, but CBS didn't have the full complement of stations. They did not have a full lineup of the, of cbs affiliates yes and we had to work we had to go i remember going with letterman to dallas to nashville to houston to las vegas to i mean letterman and i and peter came along to some of them you know we used to do these road trips and letterman would get so pissed off at me because i was I, about to say those must have been happy trips <laughs> oh, they were horrible they were horrible we were in uh houston and <laughs> You know, Letterman loves aviation and is always interested in planes. And we're taking the tour to station and they go, you want to go up on the roof and see the weather helicopter? So I said, yeah, let's go. <laughs> Letterman was, fuck you. We don't want to see what we got to go and see the weather helicopter. What? We've never seen a helicopter before. Jesus, Morty, why did you think? <laughs> and we went to the hel- weather helicopter and, you know, they made him sit in the, the, the cockpit, whatever. Uh one of the most depressing days of my life was we were in Nashville and Letterman and I had dinner together at the seafood, you know, it was like a theme restaurant, yeah. you know, well, I don't know, Fisherman's Catch or something like that. And when you walked into the restaurant, there was this gigantic scale, you know, the kind with the big round readout and, yep. you know, and they put the fish on it and you'd see how much the fish weighed. It was, uh, you know, yeah. The Letterman says to me, he goes, get on the scale. I go, I'm not getting on the scale. He goes, Morty, get on the scale. I say, all right. It's the first time in my life that I weighed over 200 pounds. <laughs> I got on that scale and I saw it was like 204 or something. And I was like, I'm going to kill myself. I weigh over 200 pounds. I can't fucking believe it. You know? It was something. And he would, of course, you weigh over 200 pounds, Morty. What are you going to do? <laughs> Back then, we were full time into the garment trade. Yeah. And but you know, it, it was it was always my dream because you know, ever since I was a kid, I loved sandwiches. I dreamed of sandwiches for, you know. And so, one day, you know, I was just thinking, wouldn't it be nice if I can just play around with a deli? To me, it's a dream come true. And so I told me, you know, why don't we just look for something to just bat around with, you know? And so we picked up the Times. And back then there was no internet. So we picked yeah, up the yeah. New York Times and we found this one, sh- one shop that was for sale. And so we, we, 
we drove over to have a look at it. And I, I fell in love with it immediately. It was not very big. It had a good frontage to it. And yep. at that time, I didn't even know it was part of the Ed Sullivan Theater. Oh, but really? Yeah. So, but apparently this guy was going belly up anyway, because he, he was not running it properly. And so I said, you know, May, let's just give him, a, um, give him an offer and, and see what happens. Because I said, I, I think I could turn it around. And so, you know, we, we literally bought it from him for 30 grand. So, so you know, I thought it was going to be a part, you know, uh, just a part-time gig, you know, yep. and I would fix it up and flip it. So, the, you know, I, I, it was, to me, it was a dream come true. For the first two years, I ran it, on my, mm -hmm. you know, with a crew and by myself. And... Um, who would have known two years later that they yeah. would move into the neighborhood and that just changed the whole you know outcome yeah. of yeah. Me running Delhi. it became a full-time endeavor well and, and, and it turned into a blessing it's been 30 years 30 years um when okay so you're there you're getting your feet under you you know in 91 that kind of a thing when mm -hmm. do you start to hear rumblings that there might be doing something with the theater Oh, yeah. Well, uh, within a few weeks of the show, and and um, I remember by then I got to know a lot of the writers, right. uh, including Robert Nett. And but when I when I first heard that they were visiting, you know, taking turns visiting the neighborhood, yeah, that freaked me out because I, again, as you know, I I just did not feel comfortable being on television I did not like being in front of an audience and it I was really getting very nervous and so I told the writers you know you guys can just go visit the other neighbors you don't have yeah. to visit me because I'm definitely afraid of being on and and of course Robert Ness said okay yeah don't worry don't worry but anyway you know it was inevitable it happened now that night I I I I I heard that they were gonna visit the copy machine center right and and so when I heard that, I breathed a sigh of relief because I said, "Oh, they're not coming over." But then, what, this is the meet the neighbor segment, right? Yeah. And what happened was, instead of just sticking with the copying center, they said, "Let's go around the corner." And then I almost freaked out. I almost fainted. <laughs> uh, when we first moved in, the the building was in such bad shape. I mean, yeah. you believe it. Rats in the basement. Um, it, it was just horrible. Yep. And um, yeah, it, it was just a wreck. And of course, you know, in it, it was a big undertaking because it, it was a landmark, yeah. and so they had to make sure that the, that the original fixtures were were there. And yep. they, they couldn't, yeah, and they couldn't do do a lot of changes. They just had to restore what was there. And so, I mean. Yeah, business business literally tripled from yeah. breakfast to lunch. It was just nonstop. I'll never forget when we designed the set at the Ed Sullivan Theater. You know, he was he was concerned because he was the greatest studio performer ever. Uh huh. A studio floor where it's and the audience is above. Yep. You know, you look right at that audience. You don't have to look down on them. He yep. was never a big proscenium performer. Yep. He was never a big stage performer. And here we are on a stage looking down. Yep. Didn't have 
the studio across the hall. He didn't have, you know, so I think he was kind of concerned. We were all concerned about what the show would, would morph into. Yeah. And look, Hal, to Hal's credit, Hal had the foresight to say, this is going to be great doing it from a theater. It's going to change everything. Yeah. We all didn't want to do it from a theater. And did you want to go to Burbank? No, none of okay. us wanted to go to California. So you wanted to stay in New York, but you couldn't do it at BlackRock. You couldn't do it like, you know. Do it at the broadcast center, but it's on 10th Avenue. There was no presence, you know. There's no magic to it like there is 30 Rock, 30 right? Rock. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we, we when they brought up the theater, we went and we said, yeah, let's try it, you know. And let him was smart enough to use the outside and to use Broadway and to use uh, Sergio and Mujibar and... Yep. and, and, and and our yeah. boy Rupert, of course. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. Kudos go out to the CBS um, construction uh, department. I mean, those guys came in and wired and rewired and wired and rewired over the years. But the transition coming into the 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 uh, the uh, uh, Ed Sullivan Theater in '93, there wasn't a control room in the basement. The the control room was up in the theater. Yeah. Um, you know, the seats were a mess. There really was old wiring. So. Um, those guys are pretty amazing construction shop and nothing would have gotten done there without those guys. There was the Carson show already. Yep. It was the Doc Severinsen band, which was the greatest. And, and, and what Absolutely. They Paul, yep. Paul not wanting to do that, even though Dave had asked, okay, we're going into more prime time when we go to CBS. Can we have horns? I really want horns. <laughs> yep. Paul you know, being the hip guy that he is, went as far as he could go by by talking Dave uh, into letting him have more rhythm section people, right? Yeah. I don't know if you remember the beginning of the CBS thing. We we added Felicia, so there's one more there, one yep. more guitar player. Then now we have two of those. Yep. And can I can I bring in Bernie Worrell as a second keyboard player? The great Bernie Worrell, who was m most known. Uh, visibly probably for being part of Parliament Funkadelic, right? And being yeah. like a great synthesizer genius wizard that he was. Yep. And, you know, and lots of other things too. You know, he, he was involved with Tom Tom Club, I think, and like things that Tina Weymouth was doing, wh whatever that project was. I guess Talking Heads itself, I think he was part of even at some point. Yep. So Paul, you know, Dave, Trusting Paul acquiesced and said, yes, go ahead and fatten up the rhythm section and I'll see if I like it. So so these these extra musicians that he added to our regular four piece core band, um, he gave like a, a 13 week contract to as in let's just see how it goes, you know. Right. Uh, no guarantees, but let's try, it, you know. And sure enough, it's some some semi didn't work out with the second keyboard scenario, but we all loved Felicia because she brought a lot to the party uh, on on a number of levels, you know, like her vocal stuff. Yep. She's a genius with like 70s, 80s R&B stuff. I mean, she brought in material that we never even heard of. And, and it really changed. It really helped shape the band a lot. Yep. And because she's just so hip and, and streetwise. And, uh, you know, and then that, that was the end of that little era. And then horn started to trickle in. And they finally got his way. I was worried about getting horns because, uh, certainly at that time, and it may not be true, but but uh, if you wanted to get guys who were excellent players, 
in all ways uh, yep. on those corners. Chances were awfully good that they were going to be older guys who did not dig rock and roll, who were condescending to play it. I had a big problem finding the right guys. And number two, there isn't going to be time to write everything out. And the, you know, these excellent players that I knew in the studio, they're just used to. There's an arranger and they, you know, things get written out. Well, I was had time in, in many cases, like a feature act, and it was almost always Tom Malone who would write out a beautiful arrangement for me. But, you know, if it's just going to be, uh, you know, uh, Alan DeGeneres and I'm, gonna be, I'm a girl washer, a G minor, you know, you got to just be able to play it. And so it was, uh, I felt a little bit compromising of the freedom that I used to have, but nonetheless, you want to have that big sound. And I tried to accomplish it with the great Bernie Worrell on the synthesizer. Yep. And that's when I added Felicia. Um, and um, so I added those two people, but it wasn't giving uh, the pizzazz that, you know, an old fashioned home. The other thing that was confusing me was Dave was really asking me if I could kind of update my repertoire. Not okay. some of the classic R&B, but let's, you know, can we not hear some stuff that's on the radio now? Well, yep. I didn't hear any horn sections here in the early 90s to speak of. So again, I was confused about which way to go. But ultimately, you know, Bernie Worrell was just an artist who, who moved on and continued to create, no longer with us, but what he was a genius. Uh, but I kept Felicia after he moved on and, yeah. and I just went, broke down, got a horn section. I could only afford two yep. initially, uh, which is weird when you only have two, you know, because so many chords, chords are so often three, three yep. parts. Uh, eventually we got to the point where we could have three. And there's a, a brief history. I didn't know that it was going to be, you know, exactly what I wanted. I just, you made Paul I sweat have, for a couple of days, right? Well, I, not intentionally. I just didn't know, like, what it was. You know, I just, I mean, TV was foreign to me. I I was a musician that would, I had been on tour a couple of times already with um, uh, Al Jarreau and Cindy yep. Lauper. And as a matter of fact, it was the last day of the Cindy Lauper tour I was in LA, we had just come back from doing Leno, because uh, he was the host of the Tonight Show at the time. And yeah. when I came in, there was a note that I had gotten a call, you know, call your mother, important. So I called, you know, the hotel had left that note for me, that message for me. So I called her and uh, she said, Felicia, Paul Schaefer called me. And I said, Paul Schaefer called you? <laughs> I was like, Paul Schaefer from TV, Paul Schaefer? <laughs> <laughs> she said, well, it sounded like that voice of his. I'm pretty sure it was him. He said, he got, got your number from Nile Rogers. I said, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. He said, what did he want? He said, he, well, he wanted me to, to uh, give you, he, he wanted your number to get in touch with you. But I told him I would take his number and uh, give it to you so you could call him. And I just said, that is so typical of my mother. She would never <laughs> give my mother out, my number out, not even to Jesus Christ. She would say, <laughs> You know what, Lord, I appreciate you're looking for my daughter, but let me take your number and I'll have her call you. And so I called Paul and that's when he told me that, um, he says, I'm sure you've heard about all this going on with Letterman getting a new show. And 
I was like, well, yeah, I'd have to be on a different planet not to yep. know it. It was like the biggest news ever. And he said, well, I'm, um, I want to talk to you about joining the band. I said, really? I said, what happened to Sid? And he said, I still got Sid. I want to expand the band. And that's when he told me he wanted to add me and Bernie, Mor uh, Bernie Worrell. Yep. On keyboards and as well. I was, I was just, I mean, it was, I was excited to be in a band with those cats, but I didn't know how to do a TV show. I was like, I don't know what to do on a TV show. Is that the kind of thing I know how to do? I, I, it just seemed so foreign to me. I really didn't think it was something that I would that I belong to, you know? So right. I, I had to think about it because I sure didn't know at the time of that phone call what, what I thought about it. So I asked him if I could get back to him. And he says, sure. He says, like, how long? I says, I don't know, give me, I don't know, about five days. He says, okay. He says, but let's not push it too much further than that because we, we got to get moving on rehearsals and lock it down. I said, okay, I'll call you in five days. <laughs> and so... I remember going out to lunch with some friends of mine out in LA. And uh, I, and I asked Al Jarreau about it too. So we're, we're sitting there at the, in the restaurant. I had Al on one side, my friend Jackie from high school on the other side. Yeah. And uh, I was telling him, I said, listen, I said, I want to stay in town because I'm going to make myself meet Janet Jackson. She's getting ready to go out on her on tour. And I know if I, you know, I can make myself meet her. I just know I sure. can vibe it into existence. Manifest it. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, Al was like, Felicia, who's in Janet's band? I was like, I don't know. He said, exactly. <laughs> 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 he said, more people will know who you are on one night, that first night of taping David Letterman, yep. than if you did 10 tours with Jan Jack. And so um, I said, okay, but like what, but what is the gig? I'm not sure what the gig is. And then my friend Jackie from high school goes, Felicia, you know what the gig is? The gig is every day and steady. How about that, huh? <laughs> that gig expanded my taste so broadly because when i started i was straight up with the funk i was a funk girl i was a yep. funketeer yes i was and um you know and i i grew up you know i when i was going out started going out at 14 15 that was at the height of disco yep and um you know anything with a groove you know black music quote unquote funk dance Rhythm and blues, that was my thing. There wasn't a lot of rock and roll. There were certain songs like on Top 40 Radio that that just infiltrated into me just from hearing it growing up and stuff. And, but yeah. as far as just, you know, what came out my heart to play, not so much rock and heavy metal and uh-uh. But when I got into this uh, Paul's band, the world's most dangerous band, you know, I was just so excited and open to to play whatever was being dished out for me to learn that it, I was I wasn't hearing it as someone on the you know tuning in the radio to see what I wanted to listen to because a lot of those songs I would have just dialed it right past it you know right. but to be sitting there learning it for to play you know in this new experience it I heard it in a whole new way whole new way like for instance one story that Paul still cracks up till this day. 
is our first rehearsal. You know, we had run a few songs, we did some P-Funk and this and that and the other. And so then we took a little break and he put on the tape for what we were, after the break, what we were gonna start on next. And it was, uh, the kids were all right by the hook. And he had it blasted, he turned it on and it blasted. And I remember it like, I, I shook like, oh my God. I literally had to walk out of the room. I was like, oh <laughs> I, I mean, I'm ashamed to say it today, but you know, at that moment, I was like, "Oh my God!" Like, you know, I had to go out of the room, and Paul and Will thought that shit was hilarious. But now I love it. You know, I'm like, I got my guitar swung low. I'm like, <laughs> I had to acquire the taste, and then eventually, you know, like I said, I was so open to. You know, you hear it in a whole nother way, and there's a whole different appreciation for it when you actually learn the song yourself. I, I got on and interning, and it was for Chris Albers, who was working with Paul at that yep. point. So Chris had been trying to get some writing opportunities going, uh, both at Late Night and ultimately Late Show, but got a job then in October. So they premiere in August of 30. Yep. I get there a week before. We're doing shakedown shows. I I sort of know New York, but I'm still about as green as it can possibly be right off the central Nebraska proverbial farm. I didn't grow up on a farm, but yeah. uh, felt, I mean, I had that sort of naive look about yes. me uh, with everything in the city. And um, so Chris gets a job at what at that point was the John Stewart MTV show. Wow. John hosted the uh, show on MTV yeah, with Howard. And, and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I don't know if it was just sort of matter of, hey, who's got a pulse and I'm sitting there in the office, but somehow I sort of take over that role. And so it's technically assistant to the musical director or assistant to Paul Schaefer is the title for that. And um, get in there quick. I am incredibly unprepared for the job. I'm incredibly, I mean, not only was it my first full-time job after college, it was basically one of my first full-time jobs. And I had worked in local television stations in Nebraska. So my office etiquette and just knowledge of some professional sort of level standards was not where it really should be. And so you will hear me say this all the time. God bless Paul Schaefer for his kindness, his patience. Um, I'm sure there were times where he was like, this kid, I, you know, and it was at a very stressful time. That first fall, you know, the Nielsen ratings were coming out every day. It was that battle. There was some pressure. Dave was feeling pressure. The entire show was feeling pressure that this had to be successful. Yep. And for me to sort of be bumbling around that first fall uh, and Paul letting me survive through that is was just an act of grace like no other. So you have probably gotten the drift and maybe this is only from super old timers like myself it's now 40 years since i took the job yeah. um that that as the show got bigger and bigger and bigger and more successful and more successful of course it it grew a little less personal on the yeah. on the office front you know everything was uh, it, it's too simple to say it grew more corporate and more gigantic but it definitely was a much larger uh, organization that had its own, uh, you know, 
inertias and 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 uh, and bureaucracies and so on it was a little simpler in the beginning and and yeah. for some reason you we could be a little lighter on our feet in that smaller studio with a smaller staff with a, but of course a an entertainer wants to reach their the, the most people they can yes. and uh, letterman certainly succeeded in that way and many others as well Overcoat and underpants. <laughs>